We started this morning with the way we normally start our Sunday mornings is with a call to worship, right? Myself or, or Mark will read a passage and, and just take a couple seconds to talk about how this passage calls us to worship. And oftentimes when we think of worship, we think of singing, right? Oh, what kind of worship do you like? What kind of worship music? We think of singing. Worship is broader than that, but it does include the singing of God's people. We don't often spend a lot of time thinking about why we sing. Why we sing. Why don't we just gather and talk? Or gather and do, I don't know, pantomimes. You know, or something like that. Or just put pictures on the screen and stare at that silently for a few minutes. Or why singing? Some of us maybe not even that comfortable with singing. We're kind of disguise our voice or sing you know, low, so the person next to us doesn't hear us because we don't feel like we're very good singers. What's with the singing? Well, it's Christian. It's biblical. We see that in the Bible, all over the Bible. In fact, we've, this is our fourth message in the book of Psalms. We're doing one sermon per book of the Psalms. There's five books in the Psalms. And that's the Bible's hymn book. It's a praise book. These Psalms were meant to be sung. And that's not the only place we find singing. In the book of Revelation, they're singing. We just saw a text uh, referencing that. Uh, all of our, the whole Bible is culminating in these songs that we will sing one day to the Lamb. And all throughout Scripture, Moses writes a song. Miriam writes a song. Mary, the mother of Jesus, writes a song. Right? So what is with singing? Why do we sing? I want to back up a minute. And just, I was curious, so I poked around on the internet, what is this, the secular, maybe humanist perspective of, as to why we sing? Um, and so I found this, I thought it was pretty interesting, so I'm going to share it with you. This is in an article written in 1992 uh, by Susan Jacques, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. The article is entitled, The Human Condition, Why We Like to Sing in Tune with Ourselves. Now, this is, uh, this is taken from the L.A. Times, so you know it's legit. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'll just read excerpts. We do it in the shower. We do it in the car. We do it under our breath at work. And when no one's home, we even do it in front of the mirror with an imaginary microphone. And some of us even do it in the rain, singing. Ballads and blues, show tunes and classics. But what separates us from professional crooners like Michael Crawford and Aretha Franklin is that they sound good. Right? Fret not, though. As it turns out, carrying a tune isn't all that important. The experts and James Brown agree that the very act of singing, even off-key, makes us feel good. I wasn't going to do a James Brown impression, but that's what they're going for. A little later in the article, they say, according to the experts, I love it when, when journals, you know, when articles say that, according to the experts, okay, you interviewed one dude, <laughs> whatever. According to the experts, singing has the power to alter our moods and conjure up memories and feelings. If you think of the Psalms while you're thinking of this, I think that's fitting. Singing has the power to alter our moods and conjure up memories and feelings. Singing also provides an emotional release, a way to express our thoughts and feelings, says Margaret Shaper, a USC professor of voice. 
quote, we sing because something inside us needs to express something beyond words, says Schaefer. Everyone can do this to some extent. The human voice is the most perfect of all instruments. Dr. Roderick Gorney, a UCLA professor of psychiatry, says this, quote, the primary impulse to sing is to express something welling up inside you in a way you yourself enjoy. There's a deep physiological and psychological impulse to express emotions through language and song. As I read that, I thought to myself, they're trying to explain the phenomenon of singing without God in it, so they're not going to get it right. We know that it's not just about singing whatever makes you feel good or whatever you yourself enjoy. That's a, a, a view of singing without God in it. But they get a lot right. They're just... They're just viewing, why do we sing? Well, it has something to do with joy. It has something to, to do with expression of emotion. There's something cathartic about it. There's something about it that just words wouldn't do. Just putting pictures up on a screen and sitting there in silence wouldn't do it. A, a movie without music, it kind of falls flat. You need the music to come underneath those scenes to make those scenes pop. So there's something that music does that only music can do. There's something that singing does that only singing can do. And while they're just scratching the surface, they're just looking at it and saying there's some kind of impulse, they can't explain where the impulse comes from or what makes appropriate uh, singing appropriate or inappropriate. But they're just recognizing the fact that singing has something to do with this welling up of emotions and this expression of gladness and joy. And when we look at Scripture... It puts that focus of singing on God. Singing is by God. It's for God. But we don't always sing gladly. Right? We don't always sing joyfully. Uh, sometimes we maybe come in here in the morning and it's okay, stand if you're able and sing. And we stand because we're able and we sing. But there maybe is not a whole lot of gladness in it. You may feel pretty discouraged or despondent or downcast or just dry. And the singing comes out, but the gladness doesn't. And what the psalm that we're going to look at today calls us to is not just to sing, but how to sing. Not just that the congregation should be singing, but the congregation should be singing a certain way. We're going to see that in Psalm 100. Psalm 100. As you turn to Psalm 100, it's been called, uh, if any chapter in the book of Psalms is a song, it's, it's Psalm 100. It is a straight-up hymn. And so when we look at Psalm 100, we're seeing a call to worship. The song itself calls us to sing with the Psalter. But not just any old singing will do, right? It's a certain kind of singing that the psalmist wants to pull out of the congregation. 
Look at verse 1. Not make a noise. It's a kind of noise. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So you, you see the emphasis there. It's not come just make noise. You know, as long as you're saying the lyrics, God knows. Yeah, he knows that you're feeling lame about it. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Not serve the Lord, period. As long as you're going to church and serving, that's all that counts. Well, not really. That does count, and that's great. That is great. It's better to, if you're feeling like, oh, I just feel, I'm not feeling church today. Go, just not feeling it, just go, right? But that's not where God wants to leave us. He wants to pull you from that, and he doesn't want you to just check off church, right? He doesn't want you to just bang out the lyrics in the song and, just, and then sit down. He wants you to enjoy it. Not make a dutiful noise, make a joyful noise, right? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. We're going to sing, if we're going to sing with joy, we're going to sing with gladness, we're going to serve him with gladness, then that means we're going to worship him with enthusiasm. Now, I'll put a caveat here because I, I don't think it means that every single time we come into church and we sing our songs, it's going to be clappy and, and we're bringing our own instruments and, you know, we've got castanets and, and spoons and I don't know what we'd pull out of our pockets to just join in. And We're not always going to be smiley. We're not always going to be high-fiving everybody next to us like, yes, the Lord, whoa. I mean, I'd personally like to see more of that, but we're not always going to be smiley, clappy, uh, clicking our heels walking into church. I mean, if you walk through the book of Psalms, there's a lot of lament going on. Sometimes he's on his face before God, and he doesn't feel like singing. Sometimes there's cultural differences and cultural gaps. You know, some cultures are just a little bit more stiff, a little bit more reserved, and uh, I am smiling. You know, that's their smile. That's what you're going to get. That's okay. All right. But it's an inward uh, position of the heart to be glad as opposed to resentful, as opposed to doubtful, as opposed to frustrated, as opposed to just tired and downcast all the time. See, lament has its place, but so does singing in gladness. And he doesn't want to leave us stuck in lament. He doesn't want to leave us stuck with our faces on the floor. He wants to bring us up and say, sing, sing with joy, sing with gladness, come and serve with gladness and enthusiasm. This is jubilation. This is praise. This is celebration. So, he doesn't want us to worship glum and gloomy, morose, sullen, right? He wants us to worship with gladness. Now, this isn't a warning passage, right? It's not saying worship with gladness or die. You know, Scripture has a lot of warning passages, but it's not a warning passage. It's an encouragement passage, right? 
He knows you need a reason. It doesn't just end with verses 1 and 2. Come, serve the Lord with gladness. Goodbye. He, he wants to say, serve the Lord with gladness. I know sometimes you feel like you can't. I know a lot of times you feel like you don't. I know sometimes you're thinking, I don't know what resource to tap into to get me to a place where I'm glad because I don't feel glad. I mean, I want to sing the songs, and I wish I could sing them gladly, but I don't, I'm not there. Well, the psalmist, he wants to take you there. And so he knows you need a reason, and he gives you a reason, which may be a surprising reason, but you'll see it in verse 3. Come into his presence with singing. Why? What's my reason? What will get me there? Well, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Okay? So here's what he's telling you. You should worship gladly because God is God and there are no other options. Who else are you going to worship? Who else is there to be happy about? But God himself. He's God. And what does it mean that he's God? It means that he created you. It is he who made us. And if he created you, and what's, what makes that? Uh, what, what, what is the uh, implication of that? The implication of that is that we belong to him. Creatorship means ownership. So you're his. And he says, sing him, sing. And he, he says, praise him gladly. And so we do that. He's our creator, so we're supposed to do it. The other way he puts it is, look, we're his people. We're like sheep. He's a shepherd, and we're his sheep in a pasture. And so you're supposed to honor the shepherd and follow the shepherd. So you see, the first move that he makes, it does sound kind of like duty, don't it? It sounds like he's saying, worship God with gladness because he's in charge. of. He's the boss of you. He's in charge of you. So let him hear it. He's, he's in charge, and he's up there waiting. He wants to hear it. So come on, right? That's what it sounds like he's saying. What's ironic is this is precisely the point that many atheists will make as to why we shouldn't worship. Verse 3 is exactly why they don't want to worship. You think of uh, a generation ago, atheists were more on the defensive. Atheists were more defending the fact that they don't believe in God. Then it kind of graduated to the more popular position. They feel like they're the popular position at least. And then there was a new atheism where they were, they're antagonistic toward Christianity. You get it? So not defensive, and then Christians are kind of on top. But now Christians are the weirdos. Christians are the dummies. Christians are the ones not paying attention to science. And it's not enough for the atheists to go, see, you guys are the ones that, at least in certain public spheres, are the minority report. Now they want to stamp out the existence of it. And so they'll pump out books about why religion is bad. It's not like you believe in religion, I just don't believe in God, let's, let's live together. They, they don't want to wear the coexist sticker on the back. They think all those religions are trash. Religion leads to war, all this kind of stuff. And one of the things they'll say is we shouldn't want to believe in a God that is in charge like this. I'm going to read you a quote. I know it's a little bit quote heavy for my, the way I normally preach, but I thought this was relevant. This is pulled from uh, Christopher Hitchens. He's not around anymore. Uh, he passed away recently, but he was sort of one of the uh, uh, four horsemen of the 
new atheist movement. This is a little verbose, a little wordy. I'm going to read it to you the way he wrote it, and then I'm going to give you the Lucas version, all right? He says, who wishes that there was a permanent, unalterable celestial despotism that subjected us to continual surveillance and could convict us of thought crime and who regarded us as its private property even after we died? How happy we ought to be at the reflection that there exists not a shred of respectable evidence to support such a horrible hypothesis. Here's the Lucas version. Why would you want to believe in a deity that owns you? And doesn't just own you from the outside. He knows what you're thinking. Every motive, every move you make, every thought that enters your mind, he's waiting, he's looking, he sees it. Why would you want to be under that kind of weight of a despot, he calls God? dictator. And he says at the end, we should be thankful that no evidence exists for that. I'm not going to respond to that part because that's what the faith Q&A is for. Plug. But the part where he's saying, look at what this verse says in verse 3. God is God. He's in charge. He made you. Therefore, you're responsible to him. And we're his people. We're like sheep. And he's the shepherd. See, we just got demoted. We were supposed to have been evolved from sheep. He's taking us back, right? You guys are kind of dumb, and you don't know where to go, and you don't even know where to eat or what to eat. And so you need a shepherd. Come on, little sheep, to guide you along. Atheists don't want to hear that. We're enlightened, you know. We should, we should, we should manifest our own destiny. They say, no, you're sheep. Why am I belaboring this? I'm belaboring this because the exact point where atheists are saying we shouldn't worship and we should, we should cast off this idea of God, the psalmist is saying, no, that's your reason to come with singing and glad singing, not, not dutiful singing. Christopher Hitchens would imagine it like, oh, there's God that's in charge of me. Okay, holy, 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 you got to sing it. He's in charge. And that's not what the psalmist is saying. He's saying because God is in charge, you should come in glad. You should come in joyous. You should be enthusiastic about the songs that you sing to this God to whom you belong. So where's the gap? How do we close that gap? How is that logical? How does that give me gladness? Before we answer that, verse 4 just kicks it up a notch. This God that owns you, this God that's over you, this God that can convict you of thought crimes, to use Hitchens' words, you should be thankful. <laughs> not resentful, not like distance from God. That shouldn't scare you. That should make you feel, ooh, I appreciate that. Thank you, God, for constantly checking my thoughts and being over me all the time. Thankful, not resentful. Look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Now, that would send the new atheist for, for a loop. What in the world? 
why would I be thankful that he's over me? I don't want that. Why would I be thankful for it? It doesn't make sense to me. So, doesn't want us to just be okay with it or comfortable with it, but thankful and appreciative for it. He wants to see gratitude in it, and in that gratitude will come the joyous noise and the serving with gladness and the entering with singing. What is Christopher Hitchens missing? Why, why should we be thankful? Verse 5 is the answer. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. You want Him in charge. You want Him in your thoughts. You want Him in your mind. You want Him uh, in your heart because He's good. He's not a despot. He is in charge, but He's not an evil dictator. He doesn't read your thoughts and know the motives of your heart to crush you and kill you and set you up. He does not tempt. There is no sin in God. It is impossible for God to sin. There is no darkness in Him, no darkness at all. There is no false motive. He's not trying to set you up, bait you, to trick you, entrap you. He does not operate that way. He's a good shepherd. Where he tells us the Lord is good, I love his, he gives you two reasons why he's good, verse 5. He says, his steadfast love endures forever. God is good because his love has no expiration date. You don't have to wake up in the morning and wonder, am I still okay with God? Does he still love me? I mean, you might have something to repent and you need to get that square. But does he love you? Yes, it endures forever. Second reason he gives in verse 5 is, Because God's faithfulness, His love, is faithful. It doesn't change to all generations. Every generation, its faithfulness is the same. His love is faithful. His love endures forever, and it doesn't change. It doesn't get diluted. It's not less. It's constant all the time. So every thought that he reads, every heart motive that he sees, he loves you in that. Even when those thoughts betray him, even when those heart motives betray him, he loves you in that. His love endures. Our love doesn't endure. If he didn't shepherd us, we like sheep would go astray. But he shepherds us because he's good. His love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. And so that is why we can worship. A God who owns us, he's in charge of us, we're responsible to him, we're accountable to him, and that doesn't make us resentful, that makes us thankful. The resentful person still has this gap, right, between them and God. They don't trust God's motives, they don't believe that what God is saying is ultimately good for them. What they believe is ultimately good for them is this little thing over here that I want to keep to myself. And if God is over me, I don't get to keep this to myself. I want to keep this to myself. I want to pet it and keep it and hold it and feed it. This is my little pet. No, that's your little parasite. It's going to kill you. So 
does a little kid sometimes feel like dad is mean because dad doesn't want you to have the 14th donut? Because dad doesn't want you to fall asleep with a lollipop in your mouth? Does that feel mean in the moment? Probably, but you should be thankful that you have a dad that cares about your teeth, that cares about your nutrition, that cares about your life, that cares about your education. You should be thankful for a dad like that, even when sometimes in the moment he seems a little bit over the shoulder figuring out every single move you make. So if you can't wait till you graduate and go to college so you can cast off the restraints of your parents, you ain't ready for college. You're going to go out there and make a mess of your life. But if you feel like, ooh, I'm stepping out from the first time from underneath this umbrella of loving care and protection, and that's a little scary, good, you're in the right place. Because that's how God operates. God is a loving, caring shepherd. Yes, he sees the thoughts. Yes, he looks at the motive, and he checks them to align them with his own heart. Because if he doesn't, we make a mess of ourselves. This is exactly the message that God gave Cain. I love how the Bible starts out, right? It starts out with these two brothers. One of them offers good worship. One of them doesn't. And God doesn't throw a, you know, send a lightning bolt down on Cain. He doesn't immediately kill Cain. Uh, he sees where Cain is headed. And you almost feel like he almost favors Cain over Abel. At first glance, it doesn't. He receives Abel's worship, and then he rebukes Cain, right? He doesn't receive Cain's worship. But he knows where Cain is headed. And instead of just killing Cain to save Abel, he lets him kill Abel. But he warns him. He warns him. Sin is crouching. Cain is going to get you, man. But you have to master it. How are you supposed to master it? Man, worship me. Stop being resentful of me and offering me your garbage. Give me the first fruit stuff. Put me first in your life. And then sin won't have mastery over you. You'll have mastery over it. And you'll walk in the line that you're supposed to walk. Don't resent worship of me. Worship of me is what's best for you. Didn't listen. Wanted to harbor his own thing. Even after he kills Abel, he, God puts a mark on him because Cain complains, but they're going to kill me. No, I'll put a mark of protection on you. I'm reading it like, why are you protecting this fool? Because God is loving, merciful, and he wants that narrative to demonstrate to us what kind of father God is. He's not there to beat you every single time you make a, a move, a mistake, and he's just waiting. He, he's salivating for the moment where he can chastise you. No. He hates when we mess up, and he wants us to walk rightly with him. So when we realize we've got a God like that, we can worship rightly. I want us to look at one verse in John chapter 10, verse 11. You can turn there or we'll put it up on the screen. I think Jesus takes the concept of this psalm and applies it to himself when he's teaching the disciples. I'm the good shepherd. And why is Jesus ultimately the good shepherd? Because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the cross. So when you're in a moment of doubt, 
Why is God allowing this to happen in your life? Why is God, it feels like God is disciplining you. It feels like God is a little bit distant. It feels like God is not responding to your prayers right away or at all. How do you know he's a good shepherd? He's leading me down this path, and I, I thought it was supposed to be like still waters and green pastures. This feels like a valley of the shadow of death is what it feels like, and I'm surrounded by enemies. Why is God setting up a table here? Why can't I be in a pasture? I don't know. Why are you in that valley and someone else isn't? I don't know. We don't always get the answer to that. We may never get the answer to that. Why is this person suffering that way and this person isn't? I don't know. What do we know? He's good. How do we know that? If we had to judge God's goodness based on our day-to-day, let's see. Yesterday I didn't have any troubles. I thought God was pretty good yesterday. But today I'm having a hard time. And I don't feel like you're very good today, God. What is one constant It'll lock into our hearts that God is good no matter what circumstance we face day to day. The cross. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you're in that hospital room and you get the bad news about cancer, and you want to you linger in this place, why cancer? How do you worship God in gladness in that moment? Not by asking why cancer, but by asking why the cross. That no matter if cancer takes me out, if a car takes me out, if a hurricane takes me out, I am assured of this eternal life, right? With God. How do I how do I know that? I know that because the cross assures it, not not what a doctor tells me. So the psalmist wants to bring us into a place where our worship of joy is not based on circumstance. You don't have to walk in here on Sunday morning and the way that you sing is based on what happened to you Saturday night. Saturday night is irrelevant to the gladness and joy in which you should worship on a Sunday morning. Why? Because we don't worship based on circumstance. We worship based on the cross and the good news of Jesus Christ. He's the good shepherd because he lays down his life for his sheep. If you've got a shepherd like that, you follow him into a valley, into a forest, into water. He's a good shepherd. So when we understand the gospel, there's no greater motivator for worship than the gospel. That should be our motivation for worship every Sunday, every song. When that's the case, we'll grow deep roots of thankfulness And the deeper our roots of thankfulness are, the thankfulness we have that God is a good shepherd, that he is uh, a loving father who provided his own son to die for us, the deeper our roots go into that gospel, the greater our fruit of joy will be. Our gladness increases when our roots go deep in what we should be truly thankful for. And that's the fact that while we were still rebels, while we were still in that, our own version of Christopher Hitchens' place of not wanting a, a celestial parent, a celestial boss to tell us what to do. We don't want that. God rescued us from that lostness through the death, life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. 
we can worship in gladness because God is truly good. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. We're going to close in a song about what we believe as we sing this song based on the Apostles' Creed. Um, I'm hoping that wherever